good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro directors here at the LSE, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the school for tonight's talk on <coughs> Why Indians Win in Business by Patrick French. Uh, Patrick's going to talk for about 40 or 45 minutes, and then we'll have questions and answers. Uh, now would be the right time, please, to turn off mobile phones or anything else that might be irritating. Uh, Patrick French, as many of you will know, is a prolific and a very highly regarded author who I think has written with great flair and distinction on Asia and perhaps particularly on India and the subcontinent. Uh, I first came across Patrick when I read uh, your first book, uh, Young Husband, The Last Great Imperial Adventurer, a book which came out in 1994 and which won both the Somerset Maugham Award and the Royal Society of Literature's W.N. Heinemann Prize. Uh, it's a terrific book about a very controversial character. Uh, more recently, as I was telling Patrick, in fact last Tuesday to be precise, on a plane from Mumbai to Delhi, I finished reading uh, Patrick's most recent book, India, an Intimate Biography. And Patrick will be signing copies of that book after the lecture outside. And I'll say something more about the organization of that when we wrap up. Uh, it's a book that I would want to recommend very highly, and it's been very widely reviewed in the quality press, both here and in India. In between those books, Patrick has published a number of other well-regarded works, including Liberty or Death, India's Journey to Independence and Division from 1997, Tibet, Tibet, A Personal History of a Lost Land, and a very fine recent biography, I think from a couple of years ago, of V.S. Naipaul, who of course himself uh, wrote uh, two or three, three I think, books that were not uncontroversial, to put it mildly, about India from the mid-60s through to the last book, I think, in the 1990s. Uh, Patrick, as all of us will know, is a very fine stylist and an extremely well-informed observer of India, uh, not least during recent rather hectic rise to global economic and political prominence. And we're delighted that you're with us tonight to tell us just why Indians win in business. Well, thank you, Stuart, very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be uh, back here at the LSE. In fact, the last time I was speaking here was, I think, about two years ago, and the subject was uh, V.S. Naipaul. So I'm having to do a rather abrupt switch of hats to uh, move from literary biography and uh, the controversial life of Naipaul to speaking to people who, I think in many cases, may be better informed than I am about why Indians win in business. Assuming, of course, that everybody agrees with the premise. There may be people who think that Indians don't uh, win in business or even shouldn't uh, win in business. Um, so what, I, what I'd like to do this evening is to really talk about the, the backstory to India's recent uh, economic change. It's such a new way of looking at India, the idea that it is potentially a very significant global economic power. It was really not that long ago when India was perceived certainly in the Western media purely as a basket case that was going nowhere and needed aid and needed charity and was really incapable of, its, of helping itself. And 
my feeling is that the different versions of India that are popularly banded around. So in Britain, there's particularly the kind of imperial view, the Raj view, which is still, you know, something that's very present in the way that people react and think of India. The idea that the history of British involvement in India is sort of central to the way in which India should be perceived. And, you know, to give one example of that, when David Cameron became Prime Minister last year, one of his first moves in order to try and show the shift in British foreign policy was to take a delegation of senior business people and government ministers, uh, I think first to Bangalore and then to Mumbai, Delhi and other Indian cities. And the way that was reported in the British press was really quite different from the way it was seen in India and also from the message that he was hoping to put across. And so he did an interview, a rather long and interesting interview with Karan Tapa, who's a kind of Jeremy Paxman equivalent on Indian television. And as a throwaway line at the end of the interview, Karan Tapa said to him, oh, and what about the, the Kohinoor diamond? Do you, do you want to give it back to India? And so Cameron says, oh, no, I think we'll keep it in the UK. And the front page lead story in the Daily Telegraph the next morning was, hands off the jewel in our crown. <laughs> So that's the way that India is still seen by many people here. Now then, of course, perhaps equally dominant today, there is the, the Thomas Friedman version of India, the idea that the world is flat, the idea that in the same way that water flows downhill, jobs will migrate inexorably to Asia because of cheap labor costs and people being well-educated and being able to perform infinite numbers of back-office operations faster and more efficiently and more uh, cheaply than they can be done uh, in Western Europe or done in the United States. And it's an attractive idea, and a lot of it is probably true. It's very hard to predict exactly how that process is going to work, exactly the way that it's going to turn out, where India is going to be in relation to other uh, Asian economies or other, glo other, other, world, uh, other economies in the world, uh, say, 10, 20, 30 years uh, from now. And then, of course, there is the uh, traditional uh, post-colonial view of India, which is still surprisingly popular in the Indian print media and to an extent in the in Indian television. And that is, I suppose, a version of India which ties quite closely in with the idea of it being unchanging. The idea that because inequality is greater now than it was 20 years ago, you almost have to discount the achievement of shifting very large numbers of people out of extreme poverty into something resembling a burgeoning uh, middle class. And my own feeling is that that uh, Indian media version of post-colonial India is probably not shared as widely by the public as might be expected. And certainly the reaction to the book, because I, before, I, before I came, came here to, to speak to, to you or to speak to other people in the UK, I did a, a book tour of India to six different cities about a fortnight ago. And there was, in a way, a gap between uh, some of that media reaction and, if you like, the popular uh, reaction to some of the things that I was uh, writing about in India, a portrait. So I guess what I'm, what I'm hoping to do through what I've written, is to draw everybody out of their ideological comfort zone, whether it's the, uh, the kind of old-style 
British Raj perception, whether it's the post-colonial uh, view of India or whether it's the, the Thomas Friedman world is flat version. And the way in which I tried to do that was to simply speak to as many different people at every level of society. To me, the interview that I did with Sunil Mittal, who runs Airtel, a company worth eight billion US dollars, is as important as the interview I did with uh, Venkatesh, who is a man who spent nearly two years of his life chained up in a quarry near Mysore as a, as a bonded laborer, effectively a slave, until he was noticed almost by accident by some farming activists who surrounded the quarry and got him released. So, uh, in a way, the, the, the contradictory aspect of India, the, the, the idea that so many things are happening simultaneously, which contradict each other, is part of that story. Uh, and, and, I, and I don't see any virtue in attempting to exclude uh, any part of it. But to move on to the idea of why Indians uh, win in business, I did actually uh, give a talk earlier today at the RSA, and there was somebody who uh, works in India who said, did you know, and I have to say I didn't know, that Britain's two largest exports to India are uncut diamonds and scrap metal, which I guess in itself probably tells you quite a bit. So why was it that it seemed such a good idea, perhaps the only idea immediately after independence, to continue with the idea of uh, Swadeshi, the idea of self-reliance, the idea that by individual Indians weaving cloth they could undercut the imperial effects of the global economy. One of the things that was very surprising to me during the, the process of doing uh, research for this book and looking into how the, the controlled, centralised, statist uh, permit Raj worked was the fact that it was so popular at many different levels of society, including people who were within, uh, the, within the world of business. So, for example, the Bombay Plan of 1944, which laid down many of the centralized economic ideas for rapid industrialization, which then turned into uh, Congress Party uh, policy immediately after independence. The Bombay Plan was written and endorsed not by Congress Party Socialists, or not only by Congress Party Socialists, but also uh, by people like uh, Sir Sri Ram or G.D. Birla uh, or uh, uh, J.R.D. Tata of Tata Industries or John Matai, who subsequently resigned from government because he didn't like the way that everything uh, was being organised through the, through the five-year plans. And I think a great deal of that had to do with a feeling that if industrialization was going to happen, it was simply impossible for it to be generated through entrepreneurship. In other words, entrepreneurship only had its value in industries that already existed, and that unless everything was centrally planned, organized, and uh, theoretically paid for by the state, it would not be possible for India to get out of the doldrums that it had been in from about, uh, let's say, 1900 to 1947. And uh, just to quote a couple of lines from the, the Bombay Plan, the quantum of personnel required for the large-scale economic planning can be gleaned from the Soviet Union. The Russians in 1939 had needed 582,000 managers of state and collective farms. 
and 450,000 heads of administration. So there were these huge numbers, this idea that everything would have to be centrally organised. And what's, what's also curious about it is that if you look at that idea of central control in the context of India's history, dating back over, uh, over several thousand years, really, the idea of trade and interaction was a central part of how India had always uh, operated. One of the things that I, I look at in the book, which has really got, has got nothing to do with uh, what I'm talking about tonight, was the, uh, the, the idea of the genetics of the Indian people and the fact that uh, genetically India is more diverse than almost any other uh, large population. So India compared to China is hugely genetically diverse. In other words, people have been coming from East Asia, from West Asia, uh, from what's now uh, part, parts of Russia. They've been coming into, into India for long enough for that to be uh, shown in the DNA of Indians from different parts uh, of the country. So. Um, just to zip forward uh, to, to various things that I'll be, I'll be touching on uh, in the next half hour, the, the, the days of Interakanti and the Permit Raj when everything was centrally controlled, uh, then the, the death of her son Sanjay and the return of uh, her son Rajiv Gandhi, who almost accidentally became India's Prime Minister uh, after his mother's assassination. And you can see this wonderful snap of... Uh, Rajiv Gandhi and Sonia Gandhi, now the most powerful woman in India, his widow, uh, buying an ice cream uh, in New Delhi. And in fact, I found this picture on a rather unlikely corner of the internet, and the caption said, ice cream vendor is Manmohan Singh. <laughs> <laughs> but there's the real uh, Manmohan Singh with our beloved monarch. <laughs> and then that's a brief um, gratuitous reference to David Cameron, uh, making kind of pro-Indian uh, or perceived pro-Indian remarks and then you can see the Karachi uh, demonstration against his loose mouth. Uh, and then here the, 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 the Silk Road, you know, prime example of the way that India was part of global trade dating back over, you know, uh, infinite numbers of uh, generations. And the, the, the late management uh, guru C.K. Prahalad he made the point that on, in, on every Indian street you can see people selling individual cloves of garlic, or you can see people uh, hauling televisions, or you can see someone else squeezing sugarcane to get the juice. And his, his point, which I have, I have to say I think I, I, I agree with, is that capitalist activity is innate to the way that Indian street life tends uh, to work. And there are 101 reasons for that. But I think it's undoubted. And in a way, what happened during the days of the Permit Raj, the idea of everything being very closely monitored and controlled, was antithetical to uh, ideas which had been around in India for a very uh, long time. So just to uh, touch on again the nature of what actually happened, uh, there's the fascinating figure of P.C. Mahalanobis, who had been a Cambridge student at the same time as Jawaharlal Nehru. Uh, he was a brilliant statistician, and he also believed in ideas that were fashionable at the time, like eugenics and measuring people's skulls in order to determine their racial origins and that kind of thing. But uh, Nehru admired him as a 
as a statistician, as a scientist, who, somebody who, who through his sheer brilliance might help to uh, transform uh, India's economy. And so I'm just going to read a few lines from a speech which uh, Mahala Nobis made in the 1950s in which he outlined how the Mahala Nobis model, as he inevitably called it, would work. Different models of economic growth are being constructed and studied on the basis of different sets of relations expressed in a mathematical form between relevant varieties. When an approximate allocation of investments is ready, the anticipated consumer expenditure is known and the requirements of final flows of consumer goods have been settled, it would be necessary to work out the total output of the different industries, inclusive of all intermediate products and consistent with the bill of final goods. Work is already in progress in 12 sectors, that is, a 12 times t 12 table, and arrangements are being made to prepare a 90 times 90 table. So, imagine that. You've got 8,100 table cells, and every one of them is part of a centrally controlled input and output. The idea being that if uh, X tons of steel are produced, then everything will go across and will flow into the other uh, industries that are going across the chart. And now the, the, the problem, the, the fundamental uh, problem of this was that in order for the uh, Mahalanobis model, which then became known as the Permit Raj and became you know, r really the way in which the Indian economy was formally structured up until the early 90s, in order for it to work, both large and small industries across the nation would be obliged to increase productivity for example, by working two or three shifts. And the resultant surplus of goods would be purchased by the state on a large scale to build up inventories which would be used to meet the increase in demand later on. So nominally, at least, the government, the state, had to be ready to purchase all of these things that were being produced by these industries so that they could then be kept back in order to be given to, be, in order to, be given to other, other industries uh, later on. Now, inevitably, the consequence of that was that, in practice, uh, it didn't work. And so, all through the 1960s and 70s, the 50s are a little bit different because uh, the government was uh, spending so much, in part using savings uh, that had been built up before 1947, the government was, was spending so much that you did see an economic upturn. And it wasn't really until towards the end of Jawaharlal Nehru's premiership and then uh, the, the, the immediate period after, after him, <coughs> uh, and then after that, the, the arrival of his daughter in Gandhi. It wasn't really until the 1960s and 70s that things uh, under the Permit Raj became particularly bad. And in fact, by the 1970s, the period 1970 to 79, per capita GDP in India was lower than it had been, was rising more slowly than it had been at any point in the previous uh, 100 years. And at the same time as certain models, for example, the Russian or the Soviet model, were being uh, taught in schools and uh, Russian cultural troops were coming to Indian cities to perform, at the same time as that was happening, a lot of politicians were in fact quietly sending their own children out of the country, sometimes on scholarships or by other means. And the ideas, if you like, that were being absorbed into India during the days of the Permit Raj were not necessarily statist. In fact, quite often it would seem that uh, the children of politicians were 
influencing their own parents with the idea that maybe things could be a little different. And one of the things that Manmohan Singh's colleagues have, uh, or contemporaries have said to me, was that when he finally did make the reforms in the early 90s, they were surprisingly popular within the bureaucracy. So the idea that everybody uh, in the bureaucracy or within the government wanted everything to remain the same was not the case. It was simply that until the chance events of the early 90s, there wasn't the political will uh, to, to make those things happen. And you had all sorts of uh, absurd situations. You had a, a, a Kerala politician called K. Anirudan, who uh, I interviewed by telephone, and he had given a wonderful speech in the 1960s about the fact the government was trying to import two IBM computers. And he, he saw a computer as being an evil thing, which was going to, as he put it, put a lakhs or hundreds of thousands of uh, Indians out of business. The idea that potentially it could uh, you know, pr provide new jobs for Indians in future years was not something that, that he took to at all. But when, he, when, 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 I, when I spoke to him, he, you know, he recognised that he perhaps had made the wrong decision at the time. And he did say to me that... Um, his son had in fact gone to one of the IITs, one of the Indian Institutes of Technology. And so the things that he was rejecting at that time came right later. And he also had extraordinary uh, decisions like, for example, somebody called Vinay Bharat Ram who managed to get uh, a license from uh, a, a Japanese company to import, this was in the 1970s, early electronic calculators. And although he'd got the permission to make something that potentially would be very popular in India, he wasn't able to bring in the plastic housing in order to make it. So he had to put the calculator inside a wooden box. And even despite doing that, it still, in fact, sold, uh, sold very well. Uh, and to just give two quick examples of the way in which things uh, operated, um, TVS is a very uh, large uh, motor uh, company in, based in South India and the grandson of the founder described to me the way that if they wanted to make something like for example a, uh, a light, a headlight for one of their motor buses or one of their motorbikes, uh, they would need to import steel and copper and in order to do that they had to make payments to a foreign company but to make the payments they had to first of all get an import license, then they had to ask the Reserve Bank of India to re release the foreign exchange, then they had to actually get the payment released and that was a very different thing from getting permission to have the payment released and then of course you had to get permission to manufacture and so again and again when this was happening uh, the, 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 the process if you like took so long that by the time it was finished maybe the particular thing they wanted to import was no longer available and again another quick example uh, if you look at, for example, something like the Heavy Engineering Corporation, one of the big state bodies that was set up in the 1950s, uh, they had a, uh, a heavy machine tool plant uh, in Ranchi. And I had a look at the, the, the tables for uh, how well it worked. In other words, you know, to what, what percentage of capacity it worked. And these are the figures from 1968 to 1974 in percentage terms. 3, 11, 11, 8, 9, 12. So you see that uh, this massive industry was working at 8% of capacity, 3% of capacity. But because of the formal structures uh, of the day, there was very little that could be uh, done about it to alter that situation. 
So uh, I won't go into too much detail about how that process was undone, because I think it is so, it is so widely known. Really, the, the chance of Manmohan Singh, a bureaucrat being appointed finance minister, and because there was a, a balance of payments crisis, being able to uh, alter the economy, not in fact to make uh, the kind of very deep reforms that were made in some countries, which perhaps happened uh, too quickly and had a kind of counter effect, but instead the idea that if you, as he put it, uh, got the government of India off the backs of business people, then potentially things could change. Uh, and I think that that perfect storm that happened in the early 90s, probably he did not uh, expect or anticipate that it would have such a dramatic effect in terms of the turnaround in the Indian economy. And what was interesting about, about his own reasons for doing that was that if you go back to his PhD thesis, which he wrote uh, at Oxford in the early 1960s, uh, it was called, or it became a, an academic book called India's Export Trends. And if you look at the, 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 the information in that book, uh, you know, he, he, what he's doing is he's making a study of particular areas, uh, jute, tea, textiles, oil seeds, minerals, tobacco, and coffee. And he's analysing exactly what regulations govern the export of any particular item from India. And the details are truly phenomenal. A bureaucrat had decided that, for example, typewriter ribbons, pearl barley, biscuits, hurricane lanterns, paper-lined hessian bags, all of these things should have their individual specification as to how uh, they could potentially be exported. And if I just take you through to a, a graph to uh, show that process, uh, you can see here, this data was in fact surprisingly difficult to, to get hold of, but you, you can see that you know, India, which if you go back 400 years, was you know, between a quarter or a third of the, the global economy, was in a situation where, through the 50s, 60s and 70s, its total exports abroad, even at the same time as countries like uh, South Korea or Taiwan were beginning to accelerate, countries which back in the 1950s had a similar standard of living to India, India through all that period was exporting 1.3, 1.3, 1.3, uh, billion US dollars worth of goods a year. There's a small uh, rise up to 8.5% during the Rajiv Gandhi era during the 1980s. And then you get this slight takeoff to 18.1 and rising to 172 uh, last year. And in fact, since the book went to press, the, 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 uh, this was a projected figure, the 177.2. The actual figure is above uh, 200 billion US dollars. So you can see the way that uh, a graduate student writing a PhD thesis was able uh, 40 years later to put his ideas into practice and uh, revolutionize the lives of many people. So there is a, a lesson or a message for any graduate students in the audience. Think what may lie ahead of you in uh, the year 2050. So, uh, what I'll do now is I will move on to um, trying to explain with uh, six suggestions or, or debating points 
partly why Indians win in business and partly why people who were brought up on a socialist uh, or a nominally socialist system adapted quite so quickly after uh, liberalisation. So um, I might just move through these slides. So yeah, there you can see a, uh, a TVS uh, vehicle. Today TVS is in the middle of producing a kind of souped up uh, auto rickshaw, very different from the normal tuk-tuk that you might be familiar with, the green and yellow one. Um, so you can see that's the, the possible future of uh, Indian city streets. And again here, this idea of rapid, rapid adjustment. Um, that's an image from, uh, I think, about 1890, kind of imperial image advertising Queen's honey soap, with Queen Victoria with a small crown on her head. Uh, you then have the immediate post-independence, very strongly nationalist idea that through uh, persuading or influencing children in particular, you could move uh, to a kind of perfect nation of ideal boys and girls who uh, you know, get up in the morning and, and uh, wash and brush up the teeth, as it says here, and they're saluting the parents, they're going for a morning walk, uh, they're praying, they're performing acts of social service. Uh, there's actually another one which I haven't put on of where you're not, not throwing uh, rubbish on people's heads. And the, there are actually uh, images of not ideal boys throwing rubbish on people's heads out of a, out of a window. Uh, so you see, this, this ideal boy does all the right things. He, he takes meals in time and, and so forth. Uh, so here's an immediate uh, post-liberalisation, I think about 1993, these kind of quite tacky uh, adverts, when suddenly these kind of adverts were appearing in India for the first time. This is um, an advert for uh, fascinating Hinduware toilets and sinks. Uh, and as you can see, it says, ever wonder why water comes to kiss the shore? That's what it says there. And now this is Chick uh, Shampoo, which I'm going to move on and um, speak about. Uh, Chick and Cavin Care, they're the, the same uh, company. So to try these uh, six points on you of, of uh, attempted explanations, the first is the Indian talent for improvisation. And anybody here who is from India or who has spent time in India will have noticed the idea of improvisation and adaptability. And I think perhaps that's something that has deep cultural roots, or perhaps it is something that was a response to the constraints and controls of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. It was almost as if people who had uh, an entrepreneurial ability or idea were forced to make it work within the existing system. So, for example, C.K. Ranganathan graduated in chemistry uh, from a college in Tamil Nadu in the early 1980s. And he didn't know what to do. He had a very small amount of money saved. And the idea that he had was to make sachets of shampoo and then to sell them to people who couldn't afford to buy a whole bottle. And so he trudged around the streets of Kadalore trying to get going. And everything that he did in business, he tended to adjust very quickly. Uh, when he realised that uh, one campaign wasn't working, then he would change it to another. Uh, his distribution system, instead of using uh, traditional traders or merchants, 
uh, and the idea of giving goods on credit, he said that the people who were distributing chick shampoo sachets would have to pay him up front. And the kind of people who he invited were retired civil servants or people who owned small uh, properties, small landlords. And he said that he would get jasmine uh, oil and he would, he would put it all over the boxes that he was uh, uh, of the shampoo sachets. And he tried to make it into a sort of thing that people wanted to do. And in order to manufacture the chick shampoo and to get around the problem of not being able to have a large factory, because in effect you'd be having to pay uh, you know, more than 100% tax on the, on, the, on the work you were doing in the factory, he had a whole uh, range of different people with miniature factories who were all producing the sachets of shampoo uh, for him. And today he has uh, an office in Chennai. He employs over, uh, over 1,000 people. He has an annual turnover of about 140 million US dollars. He's gone into uh, Chinese, which this is named after his father, uh, you know, Chinese pickles. And he was, in fact, the first person in India ever to put uh, pickles into a sachet. This was something that nobody had ever managed to do before, because when you put the pickle in the sachet, it would leak. And uh, so that was part of his, his turnaround, his, uh, his revolution that he did, he did personally. And after liberalization, when a lot of foreign uh, companies, a lot of big brand foreign names came in, he had the idea of um, putting up everybody's salary by 50%, hiring graduates from uh, IIMs, Indian Institutes of Management, and also he had the idea of moving away from uh, synthetic shampoos to uh, very traditional ideas based on uh, something called shikakai and the idea of like very traditional uh, things that were specifically Indian. So when the, the cheap foreign sachets of shampoo came in, he had his own uh, brand uh, identity. And that process of adaptation and improvisation was very much part of what he was, uh, what he was doing, and what he was uh, thinking, and, and and his company is still, uh, you know, flourishing uh, today. The second idea is the idea of Lakshmi, the idea of wealth, and the idea of wealth not being something that should ever be frowned upon. In fact, Lakshmi is a deity. So in India, and I think this extends across every religious community. I don't think it's something specific to Hindus or to Hinduism. It's the idea that the making of money and the, the, the guarding of money is something that is important and is essential. And I would say that the, the foreign idea of Mahatma Gandhi, the ascetic, giving up everything that he has in order to struggle for his particular cause, was something that in many ways was alien to Indian ways of thinking. I would suggest it is in fact a Christian idea which he had gained during his time in London and in South Africa. And although it was taken up and it turned into the, 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 the campaign for Swaraj, for self-rule, it was not something that had a particular automatic uh, resonance in India. So, for example, there's a story which uh, is a kind of apocryphal story, but it was circulating very vigorously in India a few years ago. And it was about a man, uh, an Indian man in New York, who goes into a bank and asks for a loan of uh, $250,000. And he's asked for security against the loan, and he offers his Ferrari. And so they check everything out. They give him the loan. Sorry, th he asks for a $5,000 loan. The Ferrari is worth $250,000. And so it's, it's taken by the bank, and it's driven into the underground garage of the bank. And he returns a few weeks later. 
he repays the $5,000 and the interest, which comes to $15.41. The loan officer says, Sir, we're happy to have had your business, but this transaction has puzzled us a little. While you were away, we checked you out and found you were a multimillionaire. What puzzles us is why would you bother to borrow $5,000? The Indian replies, Where else in New York City can I park my car for two weeks for only $15.41 and expect it to be there when I return? And the final payoff line of this, this email is, Ah, the mind of the Indian. And I think there was a kind of triumphalist quality to that phrase, the mind of the Indian. Um, the third suggestion, and I'm wanting to leave enough time for, for, for questions or a discussion, is the uh, strength and importance of the family business model. Although India is changing massively in social terms, and the idea of the extended family or the joint family is uh, less important than it would have been uh, a generation ago, it is still absolutely central to the life of uh, most people uh, in India, I feel. Uh, and this, in fact, is something that, that uh, is very much connected with the idea of the preservation of property and of wealth, the idea that uh, jewels, the idea that the hoarding of gold is something that is, is very important to the survival of the family, quite separate from whether it's a, a business family or not. And um, I kind of link, link this to some of the writings of John Maynard Keynes, who was having an affair with a young Indian student when he wrote a book about the Indian economy, his very first book, before he went on to develop his, his larger ideas. Uh, but the idea of uh, having goods that you, can, that you can guard, or what was Keynes put, hoard, what, what Keynes calls hoarding, to me, is uh, really a natural response in a country like India to the sort of political instability which has been endemic in most of the country for about a thousand years. In other words, if you don't know who is likely to be the ruling power a generation or two generations away, you don't necessarily want to put all your money uh, in property. Maybe you want to have it in, in something more movable, uh, like gold or jewellery. And as the world becomes more kind of broken up, as almost every society becomes more technologically advanced, I think there's a kind of adjustment of thinking so that the Indian family business model is particularly powerful and effective. And if you look at the way that Indian family businesses work, not only the kind of small family businesses that you see all over the world, whether it's in parts of Africa or East Asia uh, or in European countries, for example, the small shop, uh, which is run by a family, but also the larger business families where you know that because of the pressures or the demands or the obligations of the family, you have to do certain things. Uh, it means that there's a kind, of, uh, a, a kind of power which runs through that business, which can be quite oppressive for the people who are inside it, but also means that you have certain... Uh, things that you can rely on. There are certain ide ideas that come from the family business, which means that uh, you, can, you can have expectations which you know are likely to be fulfilled. And as a kind of sideline to that, there is the, uh, the, the extent to which Indian politics in the last 10 or 20 years has turned into a family business. Again, this is separate from what I'm speaking about tonight, but I did a study for, for this book, India, a Portrait, of how every Indian parliamentarian, every MP, got into parliament. 
And the extraordinary thing was that the situation in Indian politics has become more nepotistic now than at any point since uh, independence. And so, for example, if you uh, look at a graph of, of MPs over the age of 80 and MPs under the age of 30, uh, 0% of the older MPs are uh, hereditary politicians, and 100% of MPs under 30 are from political families. And in the uh, Indian National Congress, the Congress Party, an astonishing 9 out of 10 of MPs under the age of 40 are hereditary. They're effectively there because their mother or father or uncle was a, uh, a politician before them. And uh, you can look on uh, a new website, theindiasite.com, where I've put the full data set that this is based on. And you can see these trends and the way that uh, politics as a family business is becoming increasingly deeply entrenched, not in every part of the country, but certainly in the north, uh, particularly in places like Delhi, Punjab, Haryana, the idea of politics as a family business is a kind of new uh, aspect of this idea of the strength of family. Uh, so then three more points. The fourth one, I think, is the, which, which kind of connects in a way to what I've said, said already, is the adaptability or the versatility and the way that Indians tend to have a very strong sense of national identity, cultural identity, religious identity, and are quite happy to move to other countries and replicate ideas that they have been practicing either in India or wherever they have been uh, previously. That process of doing business in a foreign country seems to come to people quite uh, naturally. When I was in Chennai last week, I met somebody who was a Tamilian, and he said to me, uh, and he was actually, he was, what he was really talking about, he was talking about something more specific. He was talking about uh, why Punjabis win in business, which is a kind of another subject which someone else can, can lecture on. But he said that he was in the uh, Moscow airport uh, last year, and uh, there was a Punjabi family there, and the, the mother or grandmother had an iron, an electric iron, which she had plugged into a socket in the airport lounge, and she was using it to heat chapatis for her family. <laughs> <laughs> and the family were sitting on a kind of, you know, a sheet or a blanket that was spread out on the floor. And so he wanders over to, you know, the, the Tamilian guy wanders over and he talks to them, and he's like, you know, why are you in Moscow airport? And eating the chapatis and having lunch or whatever. And, uh, and you know what they were doing? These people who had never left Punjab, none of them had ever left Punjab, they had bought a farm in Chile. And to them, they knew about agriculture, they knew about how to make money out of farming, so a part of the family was simply moving to Chile to run a farm and bringing the iron with them to heat the food on the way. I think another aspect, again, which I'll touch on very briefly, is the emphasis on uh, study uh, and on education, the idea of vidya mata, the idea that studying is something more just than a, a simple obligation to yourself, but that it has a kind of, uh, partly a religious, but also a very strong family sanction, the idea that it's your duty to work uh, very hard. And again, the image of uh, Saraswati, the, the, the goddess of wisdom or learning, uh, which, is, which is very much there, uh, for example, on school, uh, on, on school exercise books. The, the, the concept of educational learning being vital is something that you get right across uh, India in pretty much every community. And for the book, I did some interviews with successful young students uh, 
And it was truly astonishing the amount of uh, work that they did in order to attain the positions that they had. Uh, a typical example might be somebody who uh, studied, had extra tuition or coaching classes every weekend, uh, who would get back from school, would maybe rest until about 7pm after school, and would then work from 7pm until 3am, uh, sleep for four hours, and then go to school at 7am. And uh, I'm not necessarily suggesting this is an ideal way to live. I'm more saying that this is uh, the reality. And I know that many of the students, you students uh, at the LSE or from other colleges in London who are here tonight, this will not seem unfamiliar. But I have to say to the British students, it is highly unfamiliar. Anybody, anybody here uh, who has recently uh, left school or who has children who they're trying to encourage to study for their uh, GCSEs or A-levels will know that the normal conversation goes, why should I have to study for more than 20 minutes? My friend only studies for 10 minutes. That would be the typical uh, British version of the same uh, conversation. And the, and the sixth uh, suggestion that I would make as to why Indians often win in business or increasingly uh, win in business is that the world as it is today or is becoming in the 21st century is highly contradictory. Many things are happening simultaneously. The sort of expectations that you could have a few generations ago in almost any country no longer uh, apply. So for example, uh, four out of the eight richest people in the world are Indian. And yet at the same time you have about 300 million people who have benefited hardly at all from the economic reforms of the 1990s. You have this extreme uh, rural poverty in particular which has barely adjusted. And another aspect, of course, of the same thing, of the, of, the, of the kind of dichotomy between the dynamic new middle class and the static, unchanging village, is the fact that many businesses which are based in India, which are doing well around the world in the moment, at the moment, uh, depend on cheap labor. In other words, without that cheap labor, it would be almost impossible to be as effective as they are. So that, in a way, is one uh, advantage which is probably going to... Uh, change or evaporate during the course of the next generation. Again, you have the fact that India is contradictory and that it is the world's largest democracy. Democracy is deeply embedded and developed. It's very hard to imagine, for example, a military coup in India, and yet at the same time, as I mentioned earlier, uh, nepotism in politics is something that is growing to the point where it is now very often a family business. And at the same time as producing uh, very highly skilled and qualified people at the top of the education system, primary education has never really uh, been brought in at any point uh, since independence uh, effectively. You also have communism and capitalism uh, subsisting quite happily side by side. Uh, it's not unusual to have, for example, uh, a communist state government practicing uh, capitalist techniques in order to bring in uh, investment. And at the same time, of course, the very nature of Indian life, because people have come from so many different places in order to end up in India today, is that uh, ethnic diversity, religious diversity, linguistic diversity is an everyday expectation in any Indian office, for example. So you might have somebody who has Tamil as their first language or Bengali as their first language or Punjabi as their first language. And so the kind of adjustments that 
countries that were more monolithic in the past are having to make in the 21st century. The kind of adjustments to multiculturalism and, and to diversity that people are now having to make in India are completely familiar. Uh, things that seem baffling uh, in other countries to Indians, I think, are often uh, completely uh, straightforward. So I'll just finish off by uh, reading one uh, paragraph uh, from somebody's personal story, which is an example of this process of change. So just show you some of the images here. This was when I was at Delhi Airport a fortnight ago, and I don't know if anybody here remembers Delhi Airport 10 years ago, but it was quite a depressing place. And now you've suddenly got this kind of shift and turnaround. And there was even a Chanel shop. I couldn't quite believe it when I, when I saw that there. And this was, in fact, in a little uh, bit off the side of the airport where uh, the private planes are kept. And the Dassault Falcon story. The Dassault Falcon 900 is a particularly popular model of plane among India's new rich because it means that you can do the hop from Delhi to London without the embarrassment of having to refuel on the way in Baku or the Gulf. And then at the same time, an aspect of that same story. This was a picture which I snapped on my camera phone in Bangalore at a place called Brigade Gateway. And these were apartment blocks which were being built, which were selling for two, three, four crore rupees each. And yet the conditions that the labourers here were working were diabolical. Uh, essentially, they had corrugated iron sh sheds. And then in the huts where people stayed, there were these uh, plastic mats that you can see on the floor. And each, uh, each mat, each plastic mat would have two people uh, sleeping on it. Uh, this is Venkatesh. He's the man who spent nearly two years chained up in the quarry. He's now uh, free. And I've, I've written about him in, in some detail. And then, of course, this image. This is in DLF uh, Mall in Delhi. This is a very familiar image. The, 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 the servant with the pram waiting uh, by the fountain in the very grand shopping mall. So, in other words, many of the uh, outward aspects of the new wealth of India that are easily visible depend on this huge kind of uh, class of, of servants and helpers in order to make it uh, happen. And that is uh, Infosys, where, where I was speaking last week. And then the final um, image I just put up is for the India site, which explains many of the uh, many of the things that I've been speaking about, but in particular the, the story of family politics and, and how that works. So the final thing I want to, to, to read is just uh, a paragraph from uh, a man called Datu. Now he was somebody who came from an Adivasi or tribal community. His parents, grandparents were landless labourers. He himself was illiterate. The only job he'd ever had was trying to grow crops and going fishing on a lake, but most days he said he didn't catch any fish. And then a winery came up close to where he was living, and he started off doing jobs like digging big pits in order to install the parts of the winery. But because he was so keen on the whole process of this thing happening, he actually ended up as the cellar master of the winery, despite the fact that he was still illiterate. So that's what he said. I look after all the cellar operations and have six people working with me as a helping hand. We execute any instructions that come from, from the laboratory. I can't write up the forms because I'm still illiterate, but I have a secretary who writes my report. He's my cousin brother. 
detailing all transfers and additions. I know all that information in my head, but other people need to have it written down so they can read it. I know how many bottles are in each place, what data process took place. We have to check the oxygen levels, the torque on the caps, the bacteria levels, the cork moisture, the taste, and the blending. So you can see a really extraordinary story there of somebody who a generation ago would have had no opportunity at all, who now, despite being illiterate, has six people uh, working with him, running a winery in Maharashtra. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Um, we're going to take questions now for about half an hour. Um, there are a couple of microphones that will come to you. If you could try and keep your questions fairly short and just start by saying who you are. Start with a gentleman up there. Hello. Um, I'm an uh, MBA student. Um, my question is, do you think the income distribution um, and I mean the fail of the income distribution, highly different social level in India, and also low uh, and pegged uh, exchange rate could be affected to the Indian business in the future, uh, especially with the Persian Gulf, um, some strong uh, economies. Uh, what, what's your thoughts about this three level. Thank you. Can you quite get there? I think there are two parts to the question. Yeah. What, one was you, you know, your, your view of the widening income distribution gap okay, in yeah. India, and then, as I understood it, whether pegged exchange rates were likely to be a problem. The second question I can't plausibly answer, because I think there are other people who will know more about that than me. But... Uh, I mean, my feeling about, the, the, about income distribution in India is that probably it's going to change uh, fairly rapidly for people who uh, are in, if you like, the kind of middle class or professional or semi-professional uh, positions. And so that uh, already you can see the fluctuation in the amount that people are being paid in all uh, sorts of industries at the moment. But whether uh, that is going to bring the people who or if you like, the poorest 50%, or certainly the very poorest 25%, uh, out of the extreme poverty that many people are still in, I rather doubt. I, I can't see exactly how that is going to happen without some form uh, of state intervention. And uh, there's a pro project called NREGA, or N-R-E-J-A, E-G-A, which is a National Rural Employment Guarantee uh, Scheme, which is effectively saying that people will be guaranteed a payment for a certain number of days a year. Uh, and it's, it's, trying to, it's trying to bring people in uh, to the active economy who previously really had, had no chance apart from the possibility of turning up day by day to see if there was some work for them. And what's interesting about that is the reaction uh, both for and against it. Uh, for example, in Tamil Nadu in the south, which is a fairly well-organized state, uh, I met people who, who were kind of, if you like, more from the social uh, s social policy side who said it was the most effective government program they'd ever seen uh, in the state and yet there were the people, there was one guy who, who was uh, 
He was, a, if you like, a family businessman involved in manufacturing, and he was furious. As far as he was concerned, Enrega was stopping people from turning up to work because they no longer had the incentive to come to work. So um, I think it's probably early days in terms of th that adjustment, and that uh, so far nothing, nothing has really shifted very far. We'll go down here and then come to you. Yeah. Take the gentleman in the front row, please. Yeah, the, the name's Keith Raffin. Um, I just wonder if you can comment on three of the things which are holding India back and which seem to be getting worse and worse. I mean, Delhi Airport's the exception, the dire state of India's infrastructure, uh, the increasing uh, conflicts, not military, but disputes between states over scarce resources such as water and then the endemic corruption. I mean nepotism in politics has also led to even more corruption and people like Mayawati, you know, prefers to build statues of herself rather than actually build uh, uh, houses for the people. Um, and the fact that in Indian politics, state politics particularly, defection which in this country is occasional person crossing the floor of the House of Commons, there they tend to cross in uh, 80s or 100s, creating huge instability, political instability, and I mean the politics and the state level is a mess. Um, I don't know if I'd agree with everything that you, that you say. Um, I mean the infrastructure point, it, it, it is a very serious problem, and I think one of the difficulties is that most uh, you know, government uh, projects to install infrastructure tend to work uh, quite badly. So, you know, the, the prime example was the Commonwealth Games, which was a kind of embarrassing disaster, really. Having said that, there are things like um, expressways as a result of pr uh, public-private partnership, which are proving quite effective. Effectively, you know, the, the, the bits of India that tend to work efficiently uh, are, are the ones that are, are, are privately run. And so, it's almost as if only by the state handing over uh, do, do those things happen? And uh, government infrastructure projects almost always seem to, to not succeed in the way that they're meant to. Uh, the, the, the resources problem between states, um, I think, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's something that, that is a great deal worse than it used to. I mean, the disputes over water between different states have been running really since uh, ever, and I'm not, I'm not convinced that is worse than it was before. The corruption point is is certainly true, um, and, and, and it's an, an extremely serious problem. I think particularly for businesses, foreign businesses trying to work in India, uh, very often it's impossible to work out exactly how the country works. It's impossible to work out how to get a foothold without being caught up uh, within that corruption. But uh, Mayawati personally, who's the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh, which is the largest state in India, She's somebody who comes from a Dalit background. Uh, what I think is interesting about her is the way that she is still extremely popular. And during the time that I was in the state of UP, it, I, was, I was very surprised by how many people were happy that she was spending, in, in, according to her own calculations, between 1% and 2% of the state's revenue on building statues or figures like the Buddha, like Kanchi Ram, the founder of the, the BSP, uh, like Dr. Ambedkar, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, the driving force behind independent India's constitution. And I think that the kind of popular feeling was that a historic wrong had been done against certain communities for thousands of years. And if uh, it was going to be put right by building uh, statues of people who previously would never have been statues, 
then that was something people were, were willing to accept. The only positive thing I'd say about corruption is that there is a great vogue in India at the moment for spy cameras and hidden audio and stings, and it is much more difficult to be corrupt than it used to. Again and again, you're getting people who are being caught out uh, because there are kind of technological ways of spotting, uh, the, the, what, spotting what they're doing. The gentleman in the middle there. Um, my name's uh, Sandip uh, Jobanputra. I um, run a family office, and one of our focuses is effective philanthropy uh, in India. Um, my question is about microfinance. Do you think that there is uh, a way that microfinance, properly done, can help the bottom 300 million that uh, you referred to? I, 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 think it, I think it probably can. I think the difficulty is that because of uh, you know, the ways that recently microfinance has gone wrong, or commercial microfinance has gone wrong, or certainly at least the way it's been reported, uh, the, 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 there's a kind of shift uh, against it. And uh, I mean, again, something that I wasn't expecting when I was speaking to, to business people in India was the way that the very fact that you could now go into a bank and get a loan had enabled them to revolutionize the way in which they worked. And I said, well, well what, do you, what do you mean by that? And so somebody like C.K. Ranganathan, the founder of Chick Shampoo and, and, and the, the other, the other you know, aspects of, of that company, uh, he said that when he started out, you, ha you could only go to a moneylender. The moneylenders coming from particular communities who were, who were charging about 4.5% monthly interest. And so you know, commercial banking has actually helped a lot of those uh, new, new companies that are, that, that, that are coming up. Thank you. Uh, I'm Dayat Hussu, I'm professor of international communication at University of Westminster and also run an India Media Center. Um, thank you for a very positive India story. We all like to hear that, um, especially when it's coming from London. Um, but one thing which you did not mention, and I've been interested in your comments, is about the so-called um, demographic dividend. Um, Nandan Nilkani makes a very interesting point in his book, uh, Imagining India. Uh, he says that India cannot invade another country or colonize another part of the world, but we have all these young people, and we can work for the world. His phrase. Um, how does that fit in with your conception of India as an emerging business uh, power or, or a political power? Thank well, I, I, th I think, it, I think it, what, what he's saying is a wonderful idea. I think the great difficulty is that, you know, India does have a potential demographic dividend. The, the, the median age in India today is 25 years old, uh, which is an extraordinary potential advantage uh, a few decades from now. But the difficulty is that if too many of those people are not properly educated or trained, it's very hard to see exactly how it will apply. Um, the, the, the more kind of positive aspect of it, I guess, is that people in, in, in India tend to be very willing to, to move. Uh, there's not an idea that you have to stay in one place in order to work. And so, you know, again and again, pretty much any country that you go to in the world, there will be people who are Indian or of Indian origin who are working in a particular industry in a particular place. And that process can kind of work 
can work both ways. It's not purely a question of exporting labor. It's amazing the way that some of the most uh, effective and inspirational social startups uh, in South India in particular are people who've worked abroad, made money abroad, for example, in Silicon Valley, and have then come back and have used their talents and their skills and what they've learned outside the country to try and make things work in a, in a more, more effective and efficient way. And so uh, you mentioned Nandan Nalekani. He's now uh, heading a, a project to give a unique ID number, an ID, a new, unique identity to every Indian citizen, 1.2 billion people, and using the iris scan as the way of uh, proving somebody's identity. And uh, looking at that operation and the people who work for the UID authority, it is really uh, inspirational. I mean, it's such an ambitious plan. It's essentially about being able to deliver services to people who at the moment can't prove their own identity. It's such an ambitious plan that it's impossible to know how it will work. But it was, it was one of the most uh, uh, impressive organizations that I think I've ever been into in order to, to speak to people. And the people who were most uh, dynamic were, were not only the ones who'd come in from the private sector. There are a lot of people from the private sector who are you know, volunteering to work there that, that you know, their company will pay for them to work there for a year or two years. But there were also a lot of people from within the civil service who had you know, begged to be transferred into the UID authority because they were so uh, excited by, by what, was, what was going on there. We'll take that gentleman there and then continue. My name's Hugh Sandman. I do business in India, uh, but more relevantly, I studied, I studied sociology here at the LSE a long time ago. And when I did that, I read a lot of Max Weber. And what Max Weber was trying to do was to explain the exceptional energy and success of European entrepreneurs by cultural explanation, exactly as you're trying to do for Indian entrepreneurs. Subsequently, the Weber explanation was decisively refuted by precisely the discussion that you're having tonight, which is that the rise of India, China, Japan, and the others knocked the Weber thesis off its footing because it became clear that it, there wasn't any exceptional cultural explanation for the success of Western entrepreneurs. The historiography has now come to be seen that actually it was more to do with the monopoly of technology and violence and the domination of world trading that actually explained their success. So in that light, I'm really wondering what the half-life of your theory is. Uh, because I work in India, I fully agree with everything you say. I think you're absolutely right. But I do wonder about whether this is really the explanation, particularly when you look at the fact that in all eras of disruptive economic change across the world, whether it was America 100 years ago, Japan after the last war, Korea you mentioned, there have been exceptional entrepreneurs. And what distinguishes them is more what they actually achieve in practical terms than the fact that they exist and that they're highly visible. Well, all, all I can say is I'm very glad I didn't uh, read anything from the final chapter of my book, which takes some of the ideas that you perhaps rightly reject uh, e even further, because uh, you know, w one of the things that I was particularly interested in is why are there so many Indians, and in particular so many South Indians, uh, in the software industry, not only in India, but around the world? You know, why, why is it that 
so many startups in uh, different countries that are involved in uh, software or technology tend to have Indians involved in them. And there's somebody who, who now is heading the technical side of the UID authority, who previously was responsible for uh, inventing or, or, or helping to invent the uh, Pentium 2 chip for Intel. And he personally felt there was quite a close link between the uh, Advaita philosophy, the Hindu Advaita philosophy that he had been brought up on, and his ability to make kind of projections of thought that then helped him to create the uh, Intel chip. So I, I guess that's an idea that you would reject uh, wholeheartedly, but please have a look at chapter 12, if only to tear it out of the book. <laughs> uh, my name is Shantanu. I'm a PhD candidate at Rutgers University in the US. Um, thank you for the talk, especially um, you know since you try to capture India in all its diversity. Uh, and um, at the risk of you know flogging a dead horse, uh, you you spoke about inequality. Um, but what I'm most concerned about is the fact that um, since the mid-80s, right, with Rajiv Gandhi's new economic program, which is when uh, the move towards what you might call a neoliberal agenda, or at least economic liberalization, for want uh, not to use the loaded terms, um, the investment in health and education, social sectors like that, has remained constant at 6 to 8% of GDP. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, while there are things like Enrega that are happening, increasingly in the villages, the government has been getting out of things, let's say, like uh, maternal health, right, and yeah. leaving it to NGOs. On the other side of the spectrum, where you have, you know, entrepreneurs doing so well, uh, yet that philanthropic activity that there might be uh, is still directed more towards religious activities and religious charities Absolutely, yeah. rather than you know uh, the Warren Buffett Bill Gates kind of model mm. uh, do you think the abdication of the government from the social sector coupled with the fact that no Cameronian big society seems likely to emerge uh, <laughs> is how much of a danger do you see that as being uh, in the Indian context I, I, I think I think it is a very serious danger and I think that you're you're, you're absolutely right that um, so much philanthropy that you see does have uh, a religious side to it. Uh, you know, just one example would be the extraordinary amount of wealth that is being put into temples at the moment. Uh, in Karnataka, uh, you know, a very prosperous uh, state, uh, there's one temple in particular which is being gold-plated. Uh, you know, it's not just gold leaf, it's actual gold, gold plate. Uh, and, and I do think there, that... Uh, it varies between different states, but there is, there is an element of abdication, and it is extremely uh, dangerous in the longer term. Okay, you can say there are effective social startups, you can say that people are now doing things through uh, the private sector, which they never would have done before. I mean, there are a lot of large, successful companies, ranging from the Bharti Foundation, which is part of, part of Airtel, to you know, other, other uh, Reliance or Tata, other, other big industries that are putting out money for social programs. And I think that those are being done, you know, n not for bad reasons. I mean, they're, they're often seen only as uh, philanthropy for the sake of, you know, publicizing how great Reliance is. But I think actually they do have a very deep and lasting effect. But the problem with that is that inevitably the state pulls away and pulls out. And just to end on a gloomy note, having been fairly optimistic through most of the talk, I think one of the gravest problems is the fact that in the parts of uh, central and eastern India that are now under Maoist control, 
And the Maoist problem, uh, again, which I write about in, in, in a fair amount of, of detail, because it's got worse, really. I mean, I, I've always been interested in Maoism as a, as a phenomenon, as a, as a way of thinking, as a, as a political phenomenon. But the fact it has got worse has meant that in those areas that are now under Maoist control, the state has simply uh, disappeared. Uh, and, you know, on a good day, maybe there may be a group of Maoist workers who will bring in something that's going to enable you to have a water supply. But, I mean, that is the rarity. And you really have now parts of, uh, of central and eastern India, particularly those places that are kind of in forested areas that are away from cities and villages, which have, have completely sort of fallen out of the remit of the Indian state. And there's no, there's no real uh, answer to that problem, because even if you're a very... Uh, active local official, civil servant, the local uh, collector or whoever it is, why are, you want to, why are you going to want to risk going into a village where you know that you and your staff may be, may be murdered by the Maoists? And uh, it, it, it's an insoluble problem and it shows uh, you know, little sign of getting better. Thank you. Going on from what you said about Maoism, um, really you mentioned about democracy and it's, everyone calls it the largest democracy. Yes, uh, but not in practice, I would suggest, and in, in the way it's, uh, it goes through, especially as you mentioned about Maoism going through. Mm. And your comment about uh, politics as a family-run business, because that will trickle down. I would suggest that there is a big flaw, there's a big problem there waiting to happen. It's a big time bomb, I think. And I wonder what your comments are on that. Well, I mean, uh, I, I think the problem of politics as a family business tends to be worse uh, at the national level than at state level. Uh, what is, is interesting is that there is a new generation of people who have made money who are wanting to now go into politics and do things, sometimes for altruistic reasons, uh, sometimes because they want to extend their business and, and make money through uh, politics. But I think at state level you tend to get people uh, bubbling up and succeeding and taking power, uh, becoming MLAs, becoming, uh, you know, in some cases, chief ministers. I, I don't think the problem of, uh, is, quite, is quite as bad as it is uh, at the centre. And the thing is about Indian democracy is that whatever may be wrong with it, it does, for all its flaws, work in a way that was never fully envisaged when uh, the decision was made after independence to have a universal democracy. I mean, the fact that any, any governing uh, or that any government in New Delhi has to manage a coalition of 15 or 17 parties means that the idea or the, or the theory of democracy has to be extended in new ways. But, but what, the, the, the reason, again, why I would take a kind of a, a sort of a, a, a positive view in a, in a reserved kind of way is that, you know, you, you, you don't choose your neighborhood. You don't choose your geography or your history. And I, I can't say that, it, uh, that, that, you can, that you can stand in India and look at any neighboring countries and think, well, they seem to have got everything sorted out a, a great deal more. And so, in, in a way, part of the, the positive side of what I'm saying is simply that uh, given the constraints of trying to run a country of 1.2 billion people, in a way, in, in, in a sense that democracy uh, is working for all its flaws better than uh, any other alternative system. And, you know, although, you know, 
any Indian might complain, well, this is wrong and that is wrong. I mean, how many people would actually want to, to be in one of the neighboring countries? So I think, it, in a way, it's like, you, you know, you have to start from here. Uh, hi, my name is Rowan Mehta. I'm currently an economic student. Um, you made numerous uh, references to the famous mobility of labor, especially that among young Indians. But, what ex uh, but to what extent do you feel that this, uh, this diversity, especially that of languages and religion, for example, is also a hindrance? I, I don't feel it's a hindrance at all, because I think the way that the world is now is that you have to, uh, you know, the, 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 the process of adjustment and diversity is more necessary than it ever has been uh, before. You only have to look at, uh, you know, somewhere like London, which is infinitely more diverse than it was during my own childhood. And that process of adjustment is something that is only going to accelerate, I think, all over the world. So, okay, you can say that it might be difficult, the fact that you have so many different languages. Uh, it might be difficult, the fact that if you're uh, Indian, very often you will have to learn three languages in order to operate. But I, I, I see it essentially as an advantage. I, I don't see a, a downside of it. Thank you. Um, I'm Dave De Silva. I'm a freelance researcher. Um, I wonder if you would be um, shifting your interests to the subcontinent of India um, as your <laughs> uh, next steps, whatever. Uh, for instance, I'm having in mind and I'm suggesting to you because uh, tomorrow happens to be the uh, uh, National Day of Sri Lanka. And it is a small but very significant uh, state as you would as you should know, uh, and I'll be very happy to remind you and, of course, collaborate with you for any research, uh, writing, whatever, you know, that you might think of. Uh, it is very appropriate because it is now called the little miracle of Asia. That's what it is now focusing on. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, thank, 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 thank you for, for saying that. I, I, I'm not sure what I'm going to, or what book I'm going to write next, but... Uh, I was thinking of writing perhaps about the, the Himalayas as a, a kind of large, larger kind of unit or concept. So I'm afraid I'm going in the wrong direction from Sri Lanka. <laughs> Possibly, because it is very significant, because you have written about Tibet already. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, it is less known because it so happens that uh, Lanka is the Rome of southern Buddhism. Oh, and this year happens sure. to be the 2600-year anniversary of Buddha's enlightenment. Okay. And Sri Lanka is significantly celebrating this in a very, very big way. Okay. Please, think about okay. it. Thank, Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for a very interesting uh, talk. Uh, I work in banking and I'm very interested in the uh, success of Indians in banking, consulting, uh, and other professional, uh, pro other professions, even in medicine, actually, and engineering. Of course, IT, we talked about it. How much of that is due to the uh, reasons that you mentioned about why Indians win in business? And how much do you attribute that to the fact that Indians who have, say, who have come to, say, Britain or the States are those who have uh, passed many exams and uh, are very hard workers? So we, basically, we have kind of a selection bias, i.e., we are looking at the top 1% of a very large population. Mm. Well, I mean, it is, it is both, both of those things, I think. Um, uh, I, I feel a little nervous because of the warning from history that I had earlier from my questioner up here. But uh, I mean, I, I suppose the way that I would see it is that things like banking, uh, 
engineering, consulting, uh, medicine, uh, software engineering, all of those things. Uh, it's not that, in a way, that the cultural roots of that, of why Indians tend to do well in those areas, need be that deep. Part of it may be simply that if you're pushed very hard to follow a particular career, and you come from a family background where people have knowledge and experience of those uh, particular areas of expertise, then you know, they, they can be put into practice. But my answer really is that I think both of, both of those reasons uh, are, are right. I'm probably just for a couple more questions. So there's a couple more questions. Uh, my name is Vinay Rao, and uh, I used to work for Infosys uh, and joined when it was a 250 people company and left when it was about 120,000. Uh, and my question is related to education. Uh, when I joined Infosys, we could pretty much hire at will uh, from the best uh, universities, from the IITs. Uh, and last year, I mean, for the last five years, six years, our strategy, growth strategy, depends on how many people we can hire. It's not about how much business we can get. So, so is the Indian education system gearing up for the 8%, 9% GDP growth? One. Second, will the lack of investment in higher education going to hinder that growth as well? Because if you look at the number of people registering for PhDs, people uh, moving into pure sciences, the numbers are st statistics are abysmal. So mm. where do you think education is going to uh, stagnate India's growth? And is, is the government going to uh, give up its control on the education sector? It has done partially, but it's still not willing to go the whole way. So. Sure. Um, yes, that's a very interesting um, aspect of all this. I mean, I, th I think a lot of, of, of uh, the more successful companies in India whether Indian companies or foreign companies have exactly that problem. You used to be able to hire at will. You used to be able to get brilliantly trained uh, people, but now those same people are either being hired by someone else or perhaps they're going abroad. In other words, uh, the demand for, for quality uh, increases all the time. And it seems to me that the education system is not uh, keeping pace with that. Uh, there are all sorts of ways around that. There's a you know, the, the, there's this huge uh, private education and coaching industry, which sometimes is, is, is obviously beneficial, but also can mean a kind of rote learning purely in order to pass particular exams. Um, the only kind of slightly positive thing I'd say is that some of the reforms that are being made to higher education at the moment uh, by the education uh, minister means that this may shift and alter. but. It, it's a very gradual thing, and I think one of the problems with education in India is that most of what has happened since 1947 has tended to be optional. So even, for example, school textbooks, although the ones that are being produced at the centre now are extremely impressive, uh, state education bodies are not obliged to buy them. And very often a state education authority will have somebody who is printing their textbooks and making a lot of money out of a certain textbook, which may in fact be out of date and almost useless in some cases. And so uh, it's something that hasn't been, hasn't been solved, uh, even though you know, quite, quite keen attempts are being made to change that right now. So I think we'll have to go to the last question. So the guy with the mic. Hi, thank you for your talk. Uh, this is Whipple from the BBC. My question was, what inspired you to write this book? And how much of your approach was positivist, Western approach while approaching this book versus a more constructivist approach to, cut, to capture the whole dichotomy of India in a way? 
Well, I, I, I first had the idea of writing the book when I finished writing Liberty or Death, which was about the freedom movement, uh, the creation of independent India, the creation of Pakistan. And immediately after that, I thought, well, I'd like to try and do something which you know, brings things closer to the present. But I then, I then ended up writing about V.S. Naipaul, which took, took rather a long time. Uh, but in fact, it was to my advantage because the way in which India has changed in the last, uh, let's say, the last decade or even the last eight years has been some extraordinary process of acceleration and transformation. Not all of it positive, but it seems to me that India is probably changing faster right now than it has at any point in its history. And so what I was hoping to do was to capture some of that through telling uh, the stories of individual uh, people. So in a way it was quite a, quite a broad or ambitious or over-ambitious idea for a book, but equally I felt that because India does hold together as a nation probably more effectively than many other nations, it should at least uh, theoretically be possible to capture all of that in 400 pages. <laughs> I think you have a very nice book. Um, Patrick is soon going to be going out and there are copies of the book for sale and then you'll be signing okay. outside so perhaps in a moment we'll, we'll let Patrick sort of zoom up and get into position. Um, I'd just like to conclude by thanking the LSE event staff as ever for putting on a very good evening. Uh, we had some splendid questions I think. Uh, mm. Max Weber in fact is one of my big intellectual heroes but he was horribly wrong on India and he once said all Hindus live in dread of the magical evil of innovation. <laughs> you can't get much more wrong than that. Uh, but whether or not your talk was Viberian in spirit rather than in, in detail, I think, is, uh, is a moot point. I think what you gave us was a very interesting account of why Indians are doing so well in business. And the book, of course, goes far beyond that. I think it's a remarkable weaving together of different tales. So thanks very much, Patrick, Thank for you. coming to speak to us tonight. Thank you. Thank you.